The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. The Russian interference in the 2016 American presidential election brought Russia to the forefront of conversations about international relations. But it has also given us a one-dimensional view of this complex country. Today's conversation is about Russian conservatism with historian Paul Robinson. We talk about conservatism as an ideology. We also talk about its history, and we talk about the many dimensions of Russian conservatism today that offer a complex and nuanced view. Our conversation is not going to be an endorsement of Russian conservatism. It is a largely undemocratic and anti-liberal school of thought. But even this statement is misleading because there are elements of democracy and liberalism, even in the ideas of Russian conservatives. So before we begin, I encourage you to consider for just a moment how you're views on Russia change as we think about different periods of its history. Today, it is largely considered conservative, at least socially or culturally. But not long ago, it was communist and associated with the most extreme version of the left. The reality is, few of us have really invested much thought um, into Russian political ideas beyond very broad generalizations. This podcast will only scratch the surface on a specific political tradition, but I hope it gives you a broader context as Russia becomes a topic in Western politics in the 2020 presidential election and beyond. So without more delay, here's my conversation with Paul Robinson. Paul, welcome to the Democracy uh, Paradox. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me. I like to dive into the book right away, and I especially like to be able to get into kind of the definitions. And you spend a lot of time writing specifically about conservatism and trying to define it throughout the book. Can you help us understand how you define conservatism, especially because I think it's very different than some people might think, and maybe add a little bit of explanation as to how Russian conservatism is distinct? I describe conservatism as ideology of organic change. That's to say, I don't define it as uh, opposition to change. So often people will think of conservatism as just being people don't want to change anything. And, you know, that is a, that is a sort of attitude which, which exists, but it's not what one would call sort of philosophical or ideological conservatism. In reality, there's very few people who want everything to stay still forevermore. Most of us believe, you know, in, in making things better, in, in progressing in some way. But conservatives think that this 
progression has to be of a certain sort. That's to say it shouldn't be founded on sort of abstract ideals or on uh, foreign concepts which are alien to a particular society. Rather, uh, progress, a change, should be organic in nature. That is to say that, you know, it, it should build upon what already exists. It should be in accordance with existing cultures and history and, and, and tradition and values. And then obviously those will change over time, but this is a, this is meant to be a, a gradual process. So conservatives would believe in, in gradual change rather than a revolutionary change. In the particular context of Russia, then that, that causes a problem because you then have to immediately define what is organic in a Russian context. And to do that, you first of all got to define what Russia is. You know, what, what is Russian culture? What is the Russian nation? In, in this respect, a lot of Russian conservatism is about defining what the Russian nation is, about building Russian identity. So in this sense, you could even say Russian conservatism is a, is a constructive ideology because it's, it's about constructing this idea of a nation so that you can then determine what is organic in Russian context. Within a Russian context, often, if you're trying to say what is organic for Russia, then that by definition means what's different about Russia from somebody else. And the somebody else you're referring to is normally Western Europe, or nowadays the West as a whole. Therefore, that leads to a certain sort of opposition in Russian conservatism between Russia and the West, and therefore builds Russia to a certain degree in, in um, it's about building a distinction between the two. So Paul, can you give me a little bit of background what drew you to this topic? It's interesting because it's both a historical book, but at the same time, it feels like a political book. What got you excited about Russian conservatism? For both those reasons, both because of its historic importance, but also because of its contemporary significance. There's a lot of talk in recent years about a conservative turn in, in Russian culture and in, in Russian politics, particularly since Putin came back to the presidency in, in 2012. There's meant to have been a, a shift towards conservative values. However, these are often extremely poorly understood in the West. People will, will talk about this conservative turn in Russia while completely failing to know what it means or put it into in its, its historical context. And then they'll, uh, for instance, point to the fact that Putin has cited some conservative philosopher and build some sort of horrific thesis out of this about how terrible this philosopher was and how terrible that means Putin is without actually knowing very much about the philosopher in question <laughs> or the context in which he was writing. Or whatever. And therefore, the interpretation of today is completely skewed by an utter ignorance of yesterday. And therefore, you need to, to look at the whole historical flow of this to be able to put current trends in their proper context. You know, what you just said kind of reminds me of if somebody's quoting somebody like a Thomas Jefferson or somebody else that had owned slaves and then thinking just in terms of that one aspect of the person. I, I would imagine that that comes up with some of the Russian conservative intellectuals too, that we look at one aspect of where maybe they did think some horrible things without understanding, like you said, the context of their entire thought process. Well, that's absolutely true because many of these conservative philosophers were very complex people who melded together a whole bunch of different things. And they could be extremely conservative while also being extremely liberal. And you have combinations which are often extremely paradoxical, uh, at least at first glance, right? So if you just take one snippet of it and divorce it from everything else, then you're going to end up with a completely distorted understanding of the whole. It was interesting how your view of conservatism 
isn't necessarily the polar opposite of liberalism. They're functioning in two different lanes almost, where sometimes they can coincide while they contradict one another. But it's it's not as simple as as one against the other. No, absolutely. The, the more I study political philosophy, the more I think that the terminology we use is completely inadequate to describe what we have. We have these terms like conservatism, liberalism, socialism, which we treat, treat as distinct beings, but they're not. They are sometimes in strong opposition to each other, but often they have an awful lot in common with one another. And you, you, you can be uh, a conservative and a socialist. You can be a conservative and a liberal. Um, you can be a conservative and horribly anti-liberal. <laughs> there are many conservatisms, right? Uh, and of course, according to certain sort of understandings of conservatism, it's, it's what's called a situational positional ideology. That means it, it's what it is you're trying to conserve and what, how you define organic change depends on where you are and when you are. So therefore, what a conservative in 1820 Russia thinks conservatism is, is not going to be the same as what an American in 2020 thinks conservatism is. And they may, in fact, be in, entirely at odds with each other. But of course, even within conservatives, you find that they disagree. Like neoconservatives, you know, are arch enemies of paleoconservatives in the United States. You know, they really don't like each other. <laughs> you know, to the paleoconservatives, the neoconservatives are the enemy, but they're both called conservative. It, it, it's an extremely complex phenomenon. Well, one topic that people link to conservatism is nationalism. Can you explain a little bit about how nationalism intersects with conservatism in Russia specifically? And also kind of just talk about all nationalist conservatives or all conservatives nationalists. Right. So as I said, if you have this idea of organic change, you, you first got to define what is organic for you, which means you have to define the nation. And inevitably, if you're talking about organic change, you're talking about us developing differently than you. So for these reasons, conservatism is inherently bound up with nationalism, right? I mean, I think that's inevitable. And in the Russian case, of course, it's very specifically bound up with this, you might say, anti-Westernism. I don't want to say, I think that's a little bit careful. We need to be a little bit careful with that because Russian conservatism is inherently um, anti-Westernism, but that doesn't mean it's inherently anti-Western. So in other words, it doesn't mean you have to hate the West. It doesn't mean you have to think that Western ways of life are bad. In fact, a lot of these Russian conservatives really admire the West and have both in the 19th century and today, a, a, you know, a, a steeped in Western philosophy. And they look to the West as, as an example of a, of a civilization which has done tremendous things. But then they say, yeah, but what's good for them is, is, isn't, isn't necessarily good for us, given our stage of development and our history and our culture. And we have a right to separate development. So there's a sort of anti-Westernism in the sense of saying, you know, Western models cannot be just plonked down here arbitrarily without consideration for our uniqueness. But that doesn't mean necessarily you've got to dislike the West. There's a sort of tension there, a demand for difference on the one hand, but at the same time, often a sense of belonging to a common humanity. Because Russian conservatism, you know, being particularist in the sense of saying, you know, we are different. The core of that difference is often Russian orthodoxy. So, so what, what makes Russia not Western? Well, you're Catholic, we're Orthodox. That's the sort of basic answer. But Orthodoxy is, by its very nature, a universalistic ideology. I mean, it means literally the right doctrine. That's what Orthodoxy means, right? So you're making, the Orthodoxy makes universalistic claims. And therefore, it, it, while demanding a separate path of development, 
it can't entirely disassociate itself from the West of the world. So Russian conservatives will say, yes, your Western models don't necessarily apply to us. We have a right to separate development, but our right of separate development isn't just for us. It's good for whole of, the whole of humanity because we have certain truths from which you can learn, but only if we keep them. You know, if we destroy our truths by becoming like you, you can then never learn from, from us and the world will cease to have this diversity, which is necessary for, for flourishing. And then you get splitting off into various nationalist directions. Some would be like, you know, Russia for the Russian nationalists, ethno-nationalists, and then you get Eurasianists, which is a whole different stream, um, which sort of views Russia as neither European nor Asian, but something uniquely different Eurasian. And so there are many complexities. And then you get the nationalism of the Russian state, which is entirely different as well, is essentially based on the state. Okay, what, what makes Russia a state is the state in, in that view of things. And so you have the often, the nationalism of Russian conservatives is often at odds with the nationalism of the Russian state, because the Russian state is not interested very much in ethno-nationalism or Eurasianism or any of that. It just wants people to be loyal to it. There's so much to unpack right there. And we're, it's going to probably take the entire conversation to get through some of that, obviously. There's a writer that talked about some of the nationalism in terms of the Russians for Russians that was writing about some of the same things you are in terms of some of the contemporary Russian thinkers. I'm not sure if you've read him before, Igor uh, Gorbachev. He wrote an article called The Parting of Ways, the Kremlin Leadership in Russia's New Generation Nationalist Thinkers. There's a quote in there that really caught me off guard. Russia acted as both the subject and the object of the colonization process. Um, talking about how some of the Russian thinkers believe that Russia should almost compress itself so that it's literally just Russia for people who are ethnically Russian, because Russia is so multi-ethnic uh, in a way that I think Westerners don't fully appreciate. Well, historically, Russia has been a uh, multi-confessional, multi-ethnic state. So when the Russian Empire collapsed in 1917, uh, ethnic Russians were like 49% of the population. It's now, a, now something between 80 and 85% okay, because of the, the falling away of, of many of these non-Russian parts of the Soviet Union. And so you have two, well, a number of competing trends within Russian nationalism and Russian conservatism. There's the Eurasianists I mentioned. So the Eurasianists would believe that there is a, there are commonalities of civilization between the peoples of the former Soviet Union. So Central Asia and Russia, for instance, are really all part of one civilization. And that therefore uh, Russia is by necessity an empire and therefore needs to have an imperial project. Then you have these Russia for the Russian nationalists who say, you know, these Central Asians, you know, these Muslims and so on, they're not like us. We don't, we don't want them. And it doesn't help us. Whenever we have an empire and we have to put these, control these people, we're not stronger as a result. We're weaker and we can't develop our own Russian culture. And the real problem of Russian history, they say, is that, you know, successive Russian governments and then the Soviet Union were always so afraid of the minority nationalities that they repressed Russian culture. Uh, and we need to have a Russia which is truly for Russian citizens, because only that way 
can you have that sort of sense of being and belonging, which is actually necessary even for a democratic order? As long as we're an empire, we, we will always having to, to be oppressive. You know, we, we can't be truly free unless we are a people. And that therefore means we should get rid of all these Eurasianist dreams and we, we should do the opposite, which is contract, go down to, you know, the basic Russian borders. And rather than having immigrants coming in from Central Asia, we should be pulling in the Russian people who are left overseas you know, Russians who are in, um, you know, Ukraine or the Baltic states and Kazakhstan and bringing them back in um, with their own own people and live in sort of a Russian equivalent of splendid isolation. It's just so bizarre to me sometimes because there's just so many strains in terms of this sense of nationalism, because on the one hand, you've got people that are imperialistic saying, hey, we should get involved in all these different places. And on the other hand, it's almost as if they should contract and be more focused just on this insular group. And then at the same time, that same strain of thought thinks that they should get involved in places where there are large Russian ethnic populations, such as in over in uh, eastern Ukraine, should be able to get involved there to, to save the Russians from the Ukrainians. It's, it's a very bizarre ideology with lots of diversity in terms of their thought. It just really impressed me with how how much there is to, to talk about. I think that's about. why you've got to be very careful when you say, when people say, well, Russia's turning in a conservative direction, therefore this means X. Well, not necessarily. It may mean X for some people, but it means Y or Omega for some, you know, a whole bunch of other people. And it's, it, it, you know, you've got to be very careful about being oversimplistic and conclusions you draw from the fact that you think people are moving in a conservative direction. Let's turn to talk a little bit about autocracy, because that really kind of caught me off guard. It made some sense to me intuitively, but it was something that you continued to come back to throughout the book. A quote explains why I was so surprised on how you described the conservative feelings about autocracy is, autocracy in the ideology of Russian conservatism means limited government. Can you explain a little bit about how autocratic governance is compatible with limited government? Autocracy literally means rule by one person. And in Russian, you have words like samovlastia, yedinovlastia, which samodzierzavia, okay, which mean basically the same thing, rule by one person. So that's, that's what autocracy is. But rule by one person doesn't say anything about how much power that person should have or what they should have power over. It just simply means insofar as you have a state, State authority should rest ultimately in the hands of a single person. And the state system should be structured as a sort of vertical pyramid leading towards that one person. However, that one person, there's nothing in now which says that one person's power should be over everything which everybody does. But he should have absolute power. That's totalitarianism. And that's not the same as autocracy. Now, clearly, Russian czars and then the communists interpreted autocracy very much as meaning, you know, unlimited power. And they, they didn't like anybody suggesting anything different. But Russian conservative philosophers had a very different view of it, which was that this autocrat is limited. He's limited in a number of ways. First of all, I mean, just by practical realities. I mean, there's, there's no way one person can govern all of Russia. I mean, it's, it's, it's just way too big. It's not going to happen. But there's also moral issues. So in, in you know, the 19th century, it's very much the sense that you know, this autocrat is bound by his responsibilities towards God. You know, he, is, he, he has to be an orthodox autocrat, not just an autocrat, he's an orthodox autocrat. There's a sense that you know, local life is really beyond his, his purview. And, and so like Konstantin Aksakov, who's one of these 
as Slava files running in the mid 19th century says that the relationship between the people and the state is one of mutual non-interference. So the people devolve all authority to running the state to the autocrat. And they say, you know, this, you're in charge of defense. You're in charge of, you know, law and order. It's none of our business what you do. You're your boss. But what we're doing back in the village, that's none of your business either. <laughs> right? So, so, so this is very much a, a limited vision of what autocracy is meant to do. It, it, it has absolute power over the things it has competency over, but it doesn't have competency over everything. And one of the things that, that really struck me was the idea that representative government or the conservatives was often passing power to the aristocrats who they saw as more of a threat to their freedoms than the autocrat, which is why autocracy was sometimes seen as a symbol of freedom as opposed to representative government because they saw that as being more oligarchic in reality rather than being democratic. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, many Russian liberals have agreed with this historically and, and then said, well, if you have representative government, you know, it's not going to be the masses who are already running the show. It, 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 it's going to be the elite. And the elite are deeply reactionary. Right? So, so, you know, if you want to have liberalism in this country, you've got to have autocracy. Uh, and similarly, like Slavophiles and people would say, you know, um, if you have representative government in the 19th century context, particularly, it, it's not going to be universal suffrage. It's, it's going to be like a property criteria or something. It's going to mean power for the rich people. And therefore, there's no way in a democratic system you're going to like free the serfs, right? It's, it's, as you say, it's going to be oligarchic government. It's going to represent oligarchic interests. And therefore, the only way that the interests of the people as a whole and their freedoms can be respected is through some form of autocracy, some, some power which is truly national and represents everybody. Whereas democracy, you know, as we know, um, is not always very democratic. Okay? So Konstantin Pabiedernosev, a famously reactionary czarist minister, he wrote this piece saying, you know, who wins elections? The people who are best organized and the people who have the best, most money. So how is that democratic, he says. You know, that's not democratic at all. Only the person standing above all this can truly be democratic. And that's the, that's the basic argument. Now, let, let's take us into like modern Russia, contemporary Russia, if we will. On the one hand, you obviously have a lot of conservatives are talking a lot more about democracy and are talking about things like that. But I would imagine that the way that the Russian economy has been very centralized in terms of what they describe as the Russian oligarchs, there's still a feeling that these oligarchs would be able to centralize power within democracy and within representative government. Is that accurate or am I off on that? Well, I think the, the, the criticism tends to be that the liberal system, as they would see it created in the 1990s following the collapse of the Soviet Union, led inevitably to oligarchic rule. And the problem with contemporary Russia is precisely that it's, it's oligarchic rule. And therefore, many conservatives are what you might call left conservatives. That's to say that, you know, certainly in terms of their economics and social views, they're what we would consider left-wing. They, they tend to think that the Russian state is in the hands of neoliberals, which is the kind of thinking we view Russia from the West, where it's used as this authoritarian right-wing conservative state. The idea that it's controlled by neoliberals seems completely baffling. But, but that's how many, many within the Russian conservative community would view it. And they, 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 they point to you know, certain individuals, you, you can name them, who, 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 who control Russian economic policy, for instance. And are definitely not of a left-wing 
perspective as we would understand it. And, and they say what you need is a, is a much more um, social state. Case. You need to break up oligarchic monopolies. You need to have a much larger welfare state, more protectionism, protecting Russia from you know, the um, vagaries of particularly American finance capital. This kind of brings us to the third part, because you break every chapter up into three different parts. You break it up into cultural conservatism, you break it up into political conservatism, and then socioeconomic. And we haven't talked at all about socioeconomics until now. One of the things that caught me off guard, Russian conservatism is very different than what we think of in the United States, the kind of movement conservatism, which is the free market conservatism. Can you help make some sense of the difference in this conservative ideology between what we think of as being a conservative in the United States versus being a conservative in Russia in terms of economics? Yeah, well, Russian conservatives are not free market economists. That's that's pretty clear. They never have been. Almost. I mean, there's one or two exceptions, but, but almost never have been. That's not to say they're socialists. They're not socialists because they, they believe in private property and so on. But 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 they're very. Why did they never kind of gravitate towards this? free market conservatism like Reagan and Thatcher and those people. What you've got to understand is like what you might call Anglo-Saxon free market conservatism is a relatively new phenomenon and a product of the Cold War. Conservatives prior to like 1945 were not free market libertarians at all, generally speaking. It was very much as a response to communism and the Cold War environment that they moved in this direction because being a conservative meant being anti-communist. (laughs) <laughs> so if you were anti-communist, well, you had to be free market. I mean, so, so it, 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 this, there was a dynamic which pushed Anglo-Saxon conservatism in a free market direction, but it hadn't previously been present. But that dynamic never happened in, in Russia for obvious reasons. And of course, if you're talking now about what is organic change in Russia, what's organic to Russia, you know, the, the Soviet economic model is part of Russian history and tradition, even though people reject socialism. Nonetheless, they accept certain parts of the Soviet economic model, particularly the welfare state, and the idea that the state has a responsibility to provide jobs and and welfare and so on and so forth, and to to regulate the economy and everything else. So so therefore, you might call, even if not fully-fledged nationalization of the means of production, the more social democratic aspects of it are now, thanks to the Soviet experience, an inherent part of the Russian tradition and understanding of what it, what it means to be. So if you look at, for instance, surveys of how Russians view human rights, they view them primarily in terms of social economic rights. So that's not to say that they don't value freedom of speech, free elections and so on. They do, but they rate like having a job, <laughs> having health care, much higher, much higher, right? So they have this social economic view of rights, uh, which is a product of, of a socialist experience, which is very distinct from what the Soviets would have called bourgeois rights, property, right to vote, so on and so forth, freedom of speech and so on, which, which is inherent in, um, in Western uh, society. I'll be honest. It, like One of the things that really struck me as I'm reading the book is that I realized that I think of Russia as a very conservative nation, and I don't think that that's odd today. Mm. I think most people do. But not that long ago, we thought of Russia as being as far to the left as possible as being very communistic. Your book did a good job because you had a chapter and you had a few chapters about the, the communist era. But in particular, you had one on late Soviet, essentially post-Stalinism, where you start to explain how the Soviet era itself started becoming more conservative and conservatism began to reemerge. Can you explain conservatism that existed during the post-Stalin Soviet era? 
Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it sort of begins to a little degree during the Stalin era, particularly, of course, with the Second World War, you get a return to sort of Russian nationalism. And suddenly all these heroes of the past, Tsarist heroes are resurrected and you, you get these medals named after Tsarist general, which is kind of paradoxical in a, in a communist state. And then once Stalin has gone and there's a bit more freedom of speech, you get intellectuals coming out who start really regretting a lot of the things which industrialization and collectivization and so on has caused, particularly like the destruction of the traditional village, the damage to the environment. That's a really big one. Like the, the, the first sort of what you might call independent political movements in the Soviet Union were environmental movements. Uh, for instance, trying to stop pollution of Lake, Lake Baikal or the river, this crazy plan the communists had to, to reverse the Siberian rivers so that instead of flowing into the Arctic Ocean, they would flow south in, in, into the desert. And then you got like, you know, bottom up movements like protesting against this. That's interesting because that parallels what's going on in China right now, because their movements right now are oftentimes more environmental as well. Okay, yeah. So, so environmentalism is in many ways a conservative thing. We often associate it with the left in the Western world, but basically it, it's a conservative thing. It's about conserving you know, nature. And you get people beginning to write quite, really quite nationalist stuff, um, often with sort of a bit of protection from someone in the party central committee, lamenting some of these changes. And, and you get big movements to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be knocking down churches because, you know, we may not believe in God, but these are, you know, they're part of our architectural heritage. They're beautiful things. Like, why are we letting all this stuff go to rack and ruin? And there's all these marvelous frescoes and icons. And, you know, we, we should be conserving this stuff and valuing it. And, you know, why are we renaming everything after communist heroes when, you know, this town has been Nishni Novgorod for a thousand years. Why, why are we now calling it Gorky? I mean, this, we shouldn't be doing this stuff, right? And that, this sort of stuff gets tolerated to a certain degree. And then occasionally the party central, the Politburo decides it's gone a bit too far and it, it, stomp, it stomps down on it again. This sort of Russian nationalism is a little bit threatening. You can't prevent it from seeping through the culture. And there's also growing sense of despair about certain social trends in Russian society, alcoholism and suicide and crime, which is leading people to feel that, you know, morals have been lost. So you get intellectuals beginning to turn back to the church, you know, and you get sort of radical priests beginning to speak out against the moral depravity of the Soviet era and what it's doing to our young people. And no one's, no one, everyone's gone to drink because they don't have any spirit anymore because communism is so materialistic. And so, so all that kind of stuff is pushing people gradually in a more conservative direction. One thing that I thought was interesting was you kind of began your book during the reign of Alexander I, who was the czar during the Napoleonic War. Can you explain a little bit about why conservatism emerged during this era and maybe why it didn't emerge earlier than that? Well, I mean, generally speaking, that's regarded as roughly speaking when conservatism is as an ideology, a formal ideology rather than just a sort of attitude. Yeah. To be fair, you mentioned how proto-conservatives existed during Catherine the Great's era, which kind of makes sense because I would imagine that she's seen as more liberal in some ways, even though she was very autocratic. So, I mean, but if you look, say, at the founders of, you know, Anglo-Saxon conservatism, people like Edmund Burke, right? Again, mm -hmm. French Revolutionary era. So, so this is part of a, a general European phenomenon, I would say. That's the first thing. So it, it, it's in touch with 
events which are happening in Europe, a shock of the French Revolution, which leads to a strengthening of anti-enlightenment uh, ideas. So this idea that like, you can just solve everything by taking reason, building up some abstract idea of how the state should be and plunking it down leads to disaster. Okay, and revolutionary wars and everything else. And people say, hang on, you know, we maybe tradition has its value. Maybe what suits one nation doesn't suit another nation. Spirituality has some meaning. It's not just all enlightenment rationalism. Okay, we, we, we need to reconsider all these things. So the French Revolution is, is a big shock. For Russians, another thing is the sort of growing westernization of the elites, many of whom speak, you know, better French than they speak Russian. You know, the sense that some people... Some intellectuals have that, you know, we're a great nation now. Our armies end up in Paris, right? But where's our culture? You know, we, we, all we're doing is aping the French. You know, our, our literature is just a copy of French literature. Our, our, our language is riddled with French words. Where's, where's us in this? What, what are we contributing to the world, which is unique about us? And, you know, they don't like this feeling very much, right? And so they think, you know, we, we, need to, we need to start thinking more about who we are and about our own nature and traditions and what we can offer the world based on, you know, our understanding and our, our history and, and our values. Um, and then that naturally pushes them in a sort of nationalistic and conservative direction. It was an influencer of, uh, of romantic philosophy from Germany and so on. The talk about the French coming up so much among the Russian intellectuals. It, it takes me back to uh, War and Peace by Tolstoy, which takes place during Alexander I's reign as he's going, as they're fighting the Napoleonic Wars. That That's kind of interesting talking about how that was a real concern of Russian intellectuals. Yeah, well, if you read War and Peace every now and again, they throw in French words, right? And this, this is the sort of thing which, you know, began to irk some members of the sort of Russian, you know, Russian intellectual class, which hadn't really existed until around 1800. Okay, but by 1800, that's another reason for this, is you're beginning to have a sufficiently large mass of intellectuals that you can start having journals and uh, groups of intellectuals and exchanges of ideas in a way you, you, you didn't really before. So Vladimir Putin, is he a conservative? Again, it depends on how you <laughs> define it. <laughs> I know it's a loaded question, but what ways is he a conservative and what ways does he break from conservatism or, or which groups? So, I mean, he's, he's a conservative, but not necessarily a, a conservative of the sort which is defined by conservative intellectuals. Conservative intellectuals in modern Russia to some degree identify with Putin and they certainly regard him as better than any possible alternative. But at the same time, they don't regard him as one of us. So, I mean, he is conservative, I'm, in my personal view, in a, in a very traditional Russian statist manner. That's to say that he is um, one of Russians, I would call a gosudasyunik, a, a statist, you know, who puts the ultimate priority on the strengthening the power of the state, because the state, without the strong state, it is believed that everything else will collapse. And this is a view which goes back to a guy I talked about earlier in my book, Karamzin, who wrote this famous history of Russia, which said that basically went through Russian history saying, whenever the state is strong and centralized and united, it does well. When as soon as it becomes divided, the whole country falls apart, and it's a disaster. So you know, he's sort of heir of that tradition. But of course, that simply makes you leads to a certain pragmatism, like basically whatever is good for the state is, is good uh, and therefore good for the people as well. Um, but that can, that can be to some degree free market economics insofar as free economics strengthen the state. 
And it also means, you know, you, you understand that a totalitarian state isn't going to work. You've learned that from the, the Soviet system. Okay, that's, you've got to give people a certain amount of freedom and initiative in order to generate wealth and ideas, which will then strengthen the state up until the point that they begin to threaten the state. <laughs> At which point you, you, you begin to rein them in a little bit. Um, but that means then you're, you're, there is room for a certain amount of liberalism within that, within certain constraints, as long as it doesn't threaten the state. On social issues, he would qualify as a conservative in, in the United States on issues like marriage and gay rights and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, you know, I think he, he very much falls in, in, in the, the socially conservative mold. But you'll notice the Russian state has done nothing, for instance, to restrict abortion rights. They, they make certain nods in the direction of that socially conservative part of the population, but they, they don't push it too far. And a degree of social welfare and, and there's a balancing of all these different parts of society. So that's really, if you want to look, he, in Russian terms, he's a centrist. He, he tries to balance everybody, give them all some input, satisfy as many groups as possible. And that's what makes him popular. You might think. Uh, Masha Gessen had a book a few years ago that was uh, The Future is History. She, she kind of portrayed some of the anti-homosexual legislation. I mean, on the one hand, it's both a nod to the cultural conservatism, but on the other hand, it's also a tool of the state to go after people that, that they think are threats to the state especially with some of the anti-pedophilia laws and the ways that they oftentimes enforce those without really consideration for the rule of law at the same time. Okay, well, I mean, there's two points. I'll start with the last one. The yeah. second one is simply a product of Russian anarchy to a certain degree. The state may send decree, but it has very little control on how people implement those decrees. <laughs> uh, and in Russia, they're often implemented very badly or contrary to their purpose or according to the purposes of local... Uh, power brokers, and um, often they simply lack the they lack the necessary knowledge to apply them properly. So they came out with a, a sort of law against extremism, which is not very different from the kind of anti-terrorism laws you you have in Western states. The problem is they then have to when these cases go to court, you have to prove it, define extremism, and as you know, according to one account, I have the problem they have is like they they lack qualified people who can really say what extremism is and, and have a necessary knowledge of, of psychology and law and everything else. And so they like get expert witnesses come in and these expert witnesses spout crap simply because of a lack of expertise in society about the way laws are implemented in Russia. Isn't, they're not implemented in this arbitrary fashion necessarily because the state is telling them to be implemented in an arbitrary fashion. It's a result of the actually of a lack of control of the state of, of its legal system and, uh, and of judicial processes and so on. So in many ways, the opposite of what I think Gesson is saying. As regards, the, the, for instance, the law on um, prohibiting a propaganda of non-traditional sexual practices, as, as they call it, it's interesting if you look at the way this came into being. It was not proposed by the Russian government. It originally came before the State Duma, was rejected. And then what happened was that um, local activists started pushing this law in regional parliaments. And I think something like 11, 10, 11 regional parliaments ended up passing similar sort of laws as a result of local pressure, at which point it came back up to the State Duma, which is the national parliament. And at that point, the, the state which had previously opposed this said, OK, like, it's obviously the people want this. Let them have it. 
So this tells you something about maybe about Russian democracy. Like if the odd thing about this is it's one of the very few rare examples you can take in modern Russia in the Putin era of a bottom-up democratic law go, go, go coming into action almost against the will of the state, which eventually adopts it as its own, right? Because it, it sees some political advantage in, in so doing. And then that makes you think, well, you know, if Russia was a much more democratic society, what would it be? Would it be a more liberal society? And, and, and I'm saying, <laughs> well, probably not, actually. The poet Alexander Pushkin once said, um, supposedly, that you know, the only European in Russia is the state. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we go back to what we were saying about the autocracy being the protector of freedoms against the, the, the reactionaries and, and oligarchy. Well, it's the same thing, you know, now, like the people are seen as, you know, they're, they're quite conservative. They're probably much more conservative than the state is. Okay, so it's not just the state imposing this conservatism on the people. What it is, is the state has realized what a popular mood is and has adopt, co-opted it and then reinforced it, of course. But there, it's not just a top-down thing. But there's a, there's a bottom-up thing happening as well. It's a kind of complex interaction. Now, you've mentioned a little bit about the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. When we talk about social conservatism, a lot of time, a lot of the literature brings in the Russian Orthodox Church. Can you talk a little bit about how the Orthodox Church has shaped conservative thought in Russia? Okay, so I mean, it is almost impossible to dissociate Russian conservatism and orthodoxy because if we go right back to the beginning of our conversation about yes. organ organic change, as I said, you know, what defines Russia as distinct from the West is the fact that it is orthodox. So you, you remove orthodoxy, the grounds of Russian conservatism, sort of a, a, the feet are cut off. So therefore, orthodoxy and conservatism are, are tightly are bound together. They always have been, uh, and, and they, they still are. It's necessary, though, to, I think, draw a distinction between the, you know, official church and, and you know, what I say, the hierarchy and its, its official doctrine and what is sometimes called political, political orthodoxy, which is far more radical, is not what... Patriarch Kirill is saying it's what like much more reactionary priests are saying. Your your village priest is generally much less educated, often perhaps not very well versed in in, in scripture and so on, and much more conservative in the hierarchy. <laughs> you look at like official statements of the Orthodox Church, such as one called the Social Basis of, of Orthodoxy, um, and there's one on human rights. They wrote they're, they're quite conservative, but. At the same time, they, you know, recognize the existence of human rights, call, they insist that the state must respect the dignity of individual human beings, which requires a, a whole degree of um, partly of, of social rights in, in particular, but also political and, and civil rights and so on and so forth. So, you know, and, and the church tries to stay directly out of, of politics for the most part. On the other hand, it also does push, um, the hierarchy does push, has been pushing back against things like abortion. The abortion rate in, in the Soviet Union was extraordinary. I, I, something like um, the average woman had something like seven abortions during her life. Wow. Simply staggering rate of abortion. That has since declined, though it is still high by um, Western standards. Uh, and the Russian Orthodox Church has been you know, pushing for various restrictions on, on abortion um, with some limited success. It pushed for religious education in schools and had limited success. So what eventually happened was that the Russian state agreed that the school curriculum should include religious slash moral education. 
but not specifically orthodox. So you now have, you have a choice. You can do a course on, you have to do like moral religious course, but it can be orthodoxy. It can be Islam. It can be Judaism. It, it can be Buddhism, or it can just be a general course on ethics, which is one that most people do. So the Russian the church sort of had a victory, but kind of not really because, <laughs> because you know, not many people do the course on orthodoxy, right? So um, this is, in a sense, reflects the, the, the power of the Russian state. It has a lot of, uh, so orthodoxy, it, it has a lot of moral influence. There are a lot of quite reactionary priests, but the state doesn't do what the church says, right? I mean, the, the, the state has its own interests and it will accommodate the church to some degree, but only to, to, to some degree, right? I mean, uh, um, um, so, you know, relationship is close, but it's, it's certainly not one that the state is doing what the church says. As we kind of wrap things up, I'd like to ask you, to what extent is Russian conservatism then a force for democratization? Is it at all? Or is, is contemporary conservatism have a democratic strain to it? It depends which strand of conservatism you are talking to. I mean, there are many... Russian conservatives who say democracy is a bad idea, per se. Uh, and all they might say Western versions of liberal democracy are badly constructed. And, and we should construct our democratic system on a different model. But they wouldn't necessarily be per se anti-democratic. You also get, I think, the, um, the sort of Russian for the Russian, Russia for the Russians, isolationist nationalists are quite determinedly democratic in the sense that they, they very much think that they want to have a democratic order, but they believe that's only possible by having a sort of uh, more or less homogenous um, Russian state. They, in that sense, you know, object to certain things which the Russian um, government has done in terms of, for instance, immigration policy and, and, and so on and so forth. And these people would contrast conservatism as being democratic with liberalism as being authoritarian. So they would they would say... Liberalism in Russia has always been associated with authoritarianism. For all those reasons we talked about earlier, you know, this, this sense that liberal reform is, cannot be constructed in Russia if there's a democracy, because the democracy is going to be reactionary. So therefore, you have to you know, maintain your autocracy to have reform. Okay? And then to look at the Yeltsin years and see how the, the Yeltsin system was you know, very authoritarian, brought in this authoritarian constitution in 1993, bombarded the parliament with tanks, imposed liberal reforms on a society which didn't want them. And therefore, liberalism is authoritarianism. Conservatism is, is democracy. That's how they see it. Yeah, there's a quote in your book that, that was interesting to me that, that emphasizes that point. You said the conservative Democrats regard modern liberalism as authoritarian in nature and contend that democracy is dependent upon conservatism. In other words, or, uh, upon a respect uh, national traditions in national yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so the argument is like, how can the imposition of Western neoliberalism, e Western economic models, Western political models on a people who doesn't want them be democratic? And when you, you look at reforming societies, so, so when the IMF gets its hands on you, or when the European Union gets its hands on you with an association agreement and tells you, okay, you know, you want association with us, this is what you got to do. Boom, 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 boom. You've got to do all these things. Well, how's that democratic? Is what they'd say. And, and, and that's how we, they would regard as the authoritarian nature of modern liberalism. Now, I'm not going to say whether you know, that's, that's right or wrong. That's just uh, their point of view. On the other hand, of course, there's the statist conservatism I mentioned, which, which um, 
you know, I think Putin is associated with, which I think has, um, is not entirely anti-democratic because I think it realizes that a strong state requires the consent of the people and the input of the people. But at the same time, it, it, it does put very certain restrictions on how far those uh, democratic tendencies can go because at the end of the day, the state interests must prevail. Okay, So, so in, in that sense, it could be seen as anti-democratic. Your book was really interesting because I, I, and the conversation here has been interesting because I think it forces us to think about Russian ideas a little bit different. It's easy to think of them purely as an antagonist that just simply disagrees with us because they want to disagree with us. But I think it's important, even when you disagree with their ideas, to understand where they came from, to understand the genesis of it, to understand how it leads them to the point where they're at today and to understand the disagreements that they have within within their culture and their their country. This has been a really informative conversation for me, uh, Paul. This has been fun. Great. I'm glad you had it. I enjoyed doing it too. So. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Cornell University Press who provided me a copy of Russian conservatism. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.